Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. In this episode, FMA developer Eric Schuster spoke to Mark Wiedenbaum, creator of the online publication Disquiet, which covers independent, ambient, and electronic music, and new developments in sound making. He also organizes the Disquiet Junto, which challenges artists to create new music each week based on a restrictive set of rules. It's Mark. Hey, Mark. It's Eric. Hello. Hey. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah. No. Thank you for the interest. So I, I wanted to I wanted to kick it off kind of just like on the subject of net labels in general. Um, cool. And especially like what what a net label looks like uh, today in 2016, just in the light of what you might call big streaming like uh, Apple and Spotify and services like that as well as on uh, artist services like uh, SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Um, has that changed what a net label means in 2016? Or? Sure. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, it can be helpful to just first think about what the net label was and is in the first place. And, um, you know, net label is largely speaking uh, a label that goes up online and places music online that exists often only online, that there's no physical counterpart, and the music is almost always free. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of distinguishing characteristics of a net label. Um, the fact is, is that I, from my perspective, I think that a lot of the reasons the net label existed to begin with have changed. You know, net labels originally, I think, were an artistic ampith- antipathy for DRM, for for not just for purchasing music, but the purchasing music where you were tied into a system that was not exactly um, graceful or helpful. Um, I think that then led to a tie into just free in general. But the fact is that DRM is really not an issue for music anymore for the most part. Um, Then again, music isn't even really purchased that much. In addition, at the time the net labels really came into being, purchasing music was still a thing that it, in a way that it hasn't been for some time because of, as you said, the rise of streaming. So I think streaming's had an effect, and I think the primary effect it's had is that the nature of consumption has changed. But one other big issue to think about is that a big reason that net labels, I think, exist to begin with is that streaming didn't really work. That, that by and large, you couldn't easily stream music, especially on the go. Mobile phones were far less, um, data was, plans were much more expensive if they were even available. Um, and the tools to stream music didn't really exist yet, especially on the go. And so in a way, net labels were answers to challenges and problems that don't exist anymore. Um, new problems exist, certainly, but a lot of things that addressed, which isn't to critique them, it's just that the, the, the environment has changed. I think net labels reacted to a lot of things that have changed. Um, interesting thing about net labels is that despite their, well, it's hard to say despite their reputation because a lot of people don't even know net labels exist, despite the fact that there's about probably at this stage about 400 of them, and I think at the height closer, maybe just 600 of them around the world. Um, but the interesting thing about net labels is that despite a reputation for being open source and creative commons, in fact, a very high percentage of them don't allow for derivative works. Um, and I knew that as someone who wrote about net label music consistently for a long time before streaming came to be and, and, and I wrote more about music that was readily available and not just through net labels. But 
in addition, um, I do a lot of remix projects through this uh, online community that I moderate called the Disquad Hunto, and I'm often looking for music to rework. And I realized about five years ago when I started to look to net labels for material to remix that, in fact, a very high percentage of net labels only allow for free download and distribution, but don't actually allow for creative reuse. So I think within that label, there was a strong community of labels that did support it. You know, C. Ryder is a good example of someone who, through Buzz Music, has been really active in that. And there's a lot of them. But but unfortunately, a lot of the net labels I follow the most don't actually allow for it. They're, they're totally up on the idea of, of removing a kind of unnecessary commercial aspect from something. They're, they're totally available to make things available for free as long as it's attribution. But as for remixing, I feel like it's still quite alive and well. I mean, I, I, I love on SoundCloud in particular how, you know, frequently when I post a sound, which is not all that often, but when I post a sound, it's almost invariable that someone will then do something with it. And uh, with a Disquiet Hunter, each Disquiet Hunter project has a unique tag to it, so I can figure out which tracks have been uploaded related to a specific weekly project. And often when I search for them, not only do I find the audio that resulted from the project the people who subsequently remixed tracks from the project or combined them. So I think there's still an enormous amount of remixing going on. I just think that um, it's it's more distributed because net labels initially were a community of people who were aware of that sort of activity. But now, because you don't need the net label infrastructure as much and those ideas are more widely spread, that it's more dispersed. But I think it's still very prevalent. It's just almost so ubiquitous that it's become invisible in a way. Um, Disquiet started out um, as like a very much a sort of, it seems to me like a community oriented or trying to be more of a discussion than just a, a platform. Um, but in the late nineties, right? Uh, it, it started in 96. Yeah. The 20th anniversary is coming up. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so you've seen, online communication move from guest books and comment forums and to forums and social media platforms and um, disquiet.com has been changing along the way to kind of take advantage of these um, evolutions. Uh, how, how does that change the way that you work as a journalist? Well, the one thing that's sometimes it's easiest to talk about what's changed by what talking about what hasn't changed. And it's always been the case for me that, that the primary thing I do is I just listen an enormous amount um, and then when I find something of interest, I follow paths. Like if there's a, an extra player on it, I'll track back who that player is and where they come from. And sometimes even if I'll find out who did the mastering and I'll figure out who that is, a lot of it has to do with that tracking back of information. Uh, if something's on a label, I'll listen to more from that label. So a lot of it's the garden of fork paths. That's, that's how I locate music. Um, you know, we used to call it crate digging um, to some extent where you look through piles of old records to find something of interest and and you may just pick it up because it, the cover was cool but more likely you pick it up because there's some something in it that that made you think oh this is the same guy there's a remix on this by so-and-so so therefore it's got some quality because i'm not gonna have a chance to listen to it till i get home for me the 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 closest thing to crate digging today that i enjoy is what i call forum digging i, I spend a lot of time looking at various forums form by forums i mean online message groups uh discussion groups where whether directly or indirectly people recommend music. So often what it is that, you know, on a technology forum, like for modular synthesizers or particular software, I'll, if, I, if someone posts something that's of interest, I'll look at their account and often that leads me to a SoundCloud page or a Bandcamp page or their, their own website. Um, 
But the main way I listen hasn't changed, which is I just listen to a lot of music all the time. And that when I find something of interest, that's what I write about. Um, I don't, the one thing I don't do, and, and I've tried for a long time and I do less and less of it and virtually not try to have an opinion on something just because it's what's out there. So if there's a new record, you know, a lot of arts journalism in general is here's some big new thing and what is your take on it? And if I don't have a take on it, I don't force myself to have one. Um, so my, I, I just listen and then write about the stuff I find of interest. In terms of what's changed, um, a big thing that's changed is that there's more and more music online. That, you know, when I wrote about net labels, a big reason I wrote about them was that commercial music was still kind of cloistered. You know, there was a long time where at best you'd be able to, what, I was, gonna, what was I going to do, write about 20 seconds of sound in a trailer that appeared on an iTunes um, cart somewhere that you could only really experience through, through a piece of software on your laptop so you could even link to it directly. Um, but as it's become more and more common, the entire tracks, entire albums are available. Um, I still trick, still stick largely to official sources. Like if I want to write about a record that's not online, and it's only online on YouTube is a video that someone else posted other than the label of the artist. I, I don't necessarily do that, but if someone does some sort of creative reworking of it, then I'll, then I'll write about it, even if it's, if it's pushing the definition of fair use. Um, you know, where I find stuff is everywhere through, you know, reposts on SoundCloud have been very useful. Um, Bandcamp, their Discover technology isn't particularly impressive to me, but the, the feed page, um, which is less well-known, but there's a prominent link on, on, on your pages if you go to Bandcamp, but it doesn't seem to be talked about very much. Um, in fact, I, I asked people on Twitter about six months ago or so who was aware of it or used it, and a lot of people who use Bandcamp regularly didn't even know what I was talking about, but if there is actually, if you go Bandcamp slash your account name slash the word feed, you see a list of everyone you follow, whether it's an actor or, or a fellow listener, and whether they purchased or uploaded something recently. It's a great way to, to kind of, to see where those forked paths are headed. Um, there's a lot of different places to find music and it can be a little overwhelming. I, I think that my, I continue to get inundated by press requests from record companies and labels and managers and publicists. And it, most of that publicity is just utterly horrible. There's just no information about what the record's about or it's music that has nothing to do with what I'd want to write about and it's falsely personal um, when in fact the, the music is so unrelated to my area that it's clear the person sending it is just sending it to 10,000 people. So that's a little depressing at times, but there's just so much music out there and I just love kind of floating around it and then writing about the thing I find most of interest. I'd like to circle back and talk about the Junto a little more uh, as well. Cool. Um, it's a series that began on SoundCloud as a group, uh, but SoundCloud's phasing out their group features and you're experimenting with moving uh, the Junto to the Lions Forum. Um, can you talk about what you envision as the future of the Junto? Cool. So, um, yeah, the SoundCloud um, has been the foundation of a music community that I founded the first January of 2012 called the Disquiet Junto. And the first Thursday of January 2012, I posted a musical prompt, an idea, a kind of composition in sentence form, and just said, if you want to make music based on this idea, please do. And we had uh, almost 60 participants that very first week. Uh, when I did it, I didn't know if anyone was even going to participate. After we had 60, it occurred to me, maybe I should do it the next week too. And so what began as a, not quite a one-off, but just as a test became a weekly thing. And 
And today, when you, Eric and I, are, when we're speaking, Friday, August 19th, 2016, um, we're three days away from August 22nd, which is when SoundCloud is going to turn off the service that was the initial foundation for the Squatento, which is a functionality known as groups. The fact is that I was already looking for alternate ways to manage the Disquiet Hunto, and so while the groups going away was a bit of a surprise in terms of I was given a month's notice, as was were other people who had groups on SoundCloud, but it was already on my mind. I mean, when the discussion discussion tab was turned off on SoundCloud some time ago, it was getting a little a little too detailed for the average listener, but in any case, there used to be a discussion tab that was really prominent that was how people in groups communicated with each other. There was a little kind of linear, no threads message board that was built into SoundCloud that they turned off. Um, and when, uh, right around the time that went away in particular, I started to just think about things we might do down the road. Um, I, I tend to try to meet change with change. So rather than worry about recreating something that matches groups to fill the void, I've been using it as an opportunity to achieve some goals I've had for a while. For one thing, one thing to remember about groups is that while I founded Hunter on SoundCloud because of the group's technology, things on SoundCloud have also changed for the better as much as good things going away. For example, when I first created the Hunter on SoundCloud, the playlist functionality, you could only create playlists out of tracks that were from your own feed. So if I was a musician, I could make an album on SoundCloud, but it was later that you could actually con collect tracks from other artists and make a playlist, what would be more called a mixtape out of them. Um, I don't know if that technology had existed to begin with, if I would have formed a group for the Squad Hunto at all. Um, I used the group technology because it was a way to achieve the goal that I had, which was to have a place where people could post tracks. But had playlists at the very beginning been able to do this, what YouTube has always been able to do, which is to create um, lists of work collected from various places, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have used the group's technology at all. So the fact is that the playlist technology is staying, so I'm pretty happy with that. All of which said, the end of groups to me has been a wake-up call or confirmed a wake-up call I had when discussion tap went away. And I've been thinking about ways to make the Hunto far less platform specific. My goal is to become platform agnostic. Um, and so uh, several months ago, there's a community called Lines, which um, is eight L's followed by .co. It's the letter L eight times .co. And it's run by uh, one of the fellows who's one of the creators of the Monum, which is a open source uh, musical physical object grid that uses um, various um, various community created patches to create sound and work with sound. And um, I was invited by him several months ago to start posting the Hunto tracks there because he felt that they would be a good addition to the music community because he wanted the community to be about more than just gear and certainly more than just the gear that he made. So the idea that the Hunto was was um, technology agnostic, that it was more about making music and not about the tools used to make it because the fact is people are more likely to talk about gear than they are about composition. That was just human nature. Um, <clears throat> he wanted those on there. So after they were on there for a while, right after the group's announcement was made, a fellow who also hosts some discussions online happened to tweet, hey, you should consider lines for a way to manage the community aspects of the Hunto. And I tweeted that it had been on my mind and then Brian got in touch and said, hey, you've already got the project there, so if you want to start doing that, what this means is that in addition to having the project there, that it becomes the recommended place that people who post tracks can post them. Now, the majority remain three weeks into this experiment of using lines. They remain um, 
SoundCloud-based, but it is a great opportunity for people who use archive.org or Bandcamp or YouTube or any other place, including just URL, uh, MP3s on their own URL, um, a way for them to participate. I'll still make playlists out of all the SoundCloud tracks, um, and I'll continue to do that. But if at some point we're down to the point where maybe 50% of tracks are on SoundCloud, maybe that'll be a next major shift. Uh, yeah, so so the, 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 the end of groups on SoundCloud to me was a really exciting way to achieve a goal I'd had for a while, which was to increase communication among Hunto participants and to not be tied to any specific platform. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago that the 20th anniversary of Disquiet.com is coming up. Uh, do you have anything planned to celebrate? Yeah, December, is, it's, it's a lot coming up. So let's see, in, in eight weeks, sometime in October, it's going to be the 250th weekly Disquiet Hunto project. That's in eight weeks. And then December 13th is going to be the 20th anniversary of the launch of Disquiet.com. I launched it in, G in December of, of excuse me, December of 1996. And then at the end of December, just a few weeks after that, will be the five-year anniversary of the Disquiet Hunto. So there's a lot going on. Um, you know, yes and no for Disquiet.com. I'm not a big kind of celebration person. You know, for my birthday this year, I just took the day off and went to see some movies with a friend. Um, but I, I, I do have some ideas. Um, I would like there to be a little bit of coverage on it. So I'm going to ask people, especially on the Hunto side of things, not so much on the Disquiet.com side of things, to, to try to get word out a little bit because I think that it's, the coverage of the Hunto is a great opportunity to get additional participants. Like we were covered in Bloomberg last year. There was a big story about SoundCloud and Bloomberg at Business Week, and that led to some additional participants, which was great. And this year there was a really lovely article about the Hunto that quoted other members, other participants, and that was uh, in the Wire magazine. And that led to a bunch of people participating. And, and I'm hopeful that for the fifth anniversary of the Hunto, we can we can see a little bit of coverage yielding some additional participants. Uh, this other places have been really supportive of the Hunto over the years, like New Music Box, as one example. Um, in terms of disquiet.com, I have some ideas. You know, I, I have an idea to do a series of concerts in San Francisco. I also have, um, but the fact is, I, I think the main thing that the 20th anniversary is having me do is just do a lot more work. I've been doing more writing than ever on, on disquiet.com. I've been, I almost, every day write something, but I've been writing even more. And I've been like this week, for example, I started a new little project called Listening to Yesterday, where I each day think about something from the day before that involved listening and I just write about it. And often it isn't music at all. Like the one I posted yesterday was about um, the sound of, of ride sharing cars and how there there's like a sound of a car idling that you frequently hear as you walk around the city, San Francisco certainly, where you hear a car idling because it's waiting for the passenger to, to enter, uh, and how there's a kind of there's a kind of tension in that idling because there's also a lot of electric and hybrid vehicles that don't make an idling sound also circling the block, and there's a kind of economic disparity between the cars that are ride-sharing cars and the cars that are driven by people who could afford ride sharing but maybe prefer a driver. Um, and then there's this third technology coming down the road of driverless cars. Um, and, and I wonder how much the idling of the, the sound of the idling of the ride sharing car, how, how that there's a kind of tension there between this idling, this sort of pause, and the fact that there might be a very serious challenge to that driver's economic security coming down the road in terms of automation. Um, so a little reflection like that, that's a little heavy, they're not all so heavy, but I've been trying to write daily about sound, so not just about music, but about sound more broadly. 
Um, I do have one big project at, at the risk of being coy. I, I don't want to talk about it right now because it's not 100% certain, but I do have a, quite a sizable project I've been spending a lot of time on, and I'm only hesitant to talk about it now because if nothing comes of it, I don't want to embarrass anyone but myself that it didn't come to be, but I'm quite certain that a very large project will come out of Disquiet um, probably by the end of the year or early next year. Uh, but yeah, no huge plans, just um, marking it as always by thinking a little bit about what, what the previous year and 20 years has been about and then, uh, and then continuing to write some more. Well, I, I couldn't talk with you without trying to sneak Aphex Twin in somehow. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you, like, what, this is pretty broad, but uh, like, what's your take on Aphex Twin of the 2010s? Just... At the most basic level, it's just nice to have him back. You know, he had been gone in many ways for a very long time. And musicians often just sort of disappear um, to varying degrees. When I think about Aphex Twin reappearing, I think to less drastic examples, but one that just happened this week and one that happened several months ago, which is several months ago, Missy Elliott, out of the blue, had a video up, and not just a video, but like a really highly polished video with Farrell Williams on it. And I, I mean, it had been a very long time since she'd released music. And to have her back, I just remember that morning thinking, wow, the world is just a better place where Missy Elliott is in it. And it's not that she had died previously, right? She'd been in it, but she'd not been, the world had not had Missy Elliott as a, as a, as a, as a, as a producing musician for a long time. And it was very nice to have her back. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about Aphex Twin. Um, it just, when I wrote that, I wrote a book, um, which is what Eric's talking about. I wrote a book for the 33 and the third series, specifically about the Selected Ambient Works Volume 2 album that Aphex Twin released in 1994. And <clears throat> when I wrote that book, when I, was, when I was researching the book and when I wrote and when it was published, that, that was all in the past tense. I didn't talk to a single person who did not speak about Aphex Twin in the past tense when I, when I was researching that book and I interviewed a lot of people. Um, and yet within a few months of the book's publication, he, it was uh, his birthday hit and he suddenly reappeared on the scene, as it were. And there was a giant blimp in England and then suddenly there was a big record release and he suddenly uploaded to SoundCloud oh, upwards of 250 or 260 tracks from his archives. And it was amazing to have him back. And then he kind of receded a little bit. And then he's been, he himself has been coy. He posts some music and then disappears for a while and then posts another track. And it's become a little formulaic. There seems to be a kind of, a kind of sense that when he posts something to SoundCloud, it precedes a commercial release. So when the Cheetah EP was coming out, there was some activity that preceded it. Um, so there's a bit of priming the pump going on, but I'm not going to complain if it means getting lots more um, music from him out there. That's for sure. Sure. Well, maybe he'll uh, participate in a junto at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I did actually, when he was super public on, um, on SoundCloud, I did DM him. I never heard back, but that would have been cool. I interviewed him once many years ago, which was really enjoyable. He, oh, yeah. Uh, it was very fun to talk with him. Thanks again for spending some time chatting with me, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, Eric, I totally appreciate it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your music and, um, you know, a big, I think a big emotional moment for me in understanding what the nature of online music community was, was about six years ago, almost to the day when um, my child was born. And you, of course, put together that compilation of of music for kind of a a Raymond Scott themed um, Soothing Sounds for Baby compilation of of original music intended for my kid. And so I think about that frequently, especially um, when my kid's birthday is about to happen. So thanks for being part of the community where all this happens. Yeah, of course. Uh, We were just basically trying to say thanks to you. (laughs) That's so so awesome. Uh, Well, yeah, thanks, man. Um, Take care. Yep, you too.
Grazie. Bye. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby, which can be found at freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons attribution license. For more information about Mark and his projects, please visit disquiet.com.